welcome to an explicit edition of the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This American Life, On the Media, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, Mark Marin, and Le Show. David says there are only two ways to see it. Either he succeeded in inviting the devil into a church camp in Wisconsin, or he didn't. It was right around this time of year. David was 12. Back home in Sheboygan, he went to a religious school. It was pretty strict, fundamentalist. And one summer night around the campfire, he and his friends started talking about all these supernatural things they'd heard of. Not just ghost stories, but like, you know, have you ever used a Ouija board? You know, like, do you believe in that stuff? Kind of, you know, and then stories of like my friend, you know, whatever it was like, oh, they they were using a, a juice glass for the Ouija board and it filled with smoke while they were doing it, you know, just sort of scaring ourselves and and um, right, which is one of the best parts of camp. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the next thing I remember is we, we all went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know if I was like half in a dream or what, um, but I heard something that what I thought was something flying over the cabin. Um, this sort of like, whoosh, sort of like, and in my mind, you know, sort of with all the conversation that had gone on earlier in the evening, I thought it was the devil that. You know, all this talk had somehow, like, opened up some door. Like, you know, if you use a Ouija board, you can bring spirits. And I knew my friend had a crucifix that he had brought with him, this sort of three-inch metal crucifix. And I woke him up and I said, you know, can I have that crucifix? Somehow, and I know you'll be shocked to hear this, they all survived that night safely. And the next morning when they all went to the showers, David told the other guys about the sound that he had heard in the middle of the night, and they all laughed at him. And later that morning, coming back from sailing, he's going to the cabin to change out of his swimsuit right before lunch. And he sees this storm rolling in. And my mind was still full of like these ideas of like Ouija boards and the supernatural and the devil and all that stuff. And... Um, you know, first of all, I started imagining this storm as coming from the devil, you know, this sort of rumbling off in the distance as coming from the devil. And for whatever reason, my reaction was to sort of challenge the devil to sort of be like, OK, come on, like bring it on, like, you know, come and come and fight me, you know, or fight us or like, let, let's see what you got. You know, I'm at a church camp and like I'm I'm with God and, you know, you're you're not and all that. But I also remember saying like 666 over and over again, which is just more like a curiosity thing, like to see what would happen, you know, just this sort of childhood curiosity. Like, right. Taunt him a little. Yeah. 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 Taunting him. Well, that seems to do the job because right away it starts to pour and not just pour this light summer drizzle. This was a torrential Old Testament downpour. The kind where your clothes are immediately sopping wet, you're drenched instantaneously. David thought, okay, that worked. And he got back to his cabin and changed his clothes for lunch, and he saw the guy who he'd borrowed the crucifix from the night before, whose name was Joe. And I said to Joe, do you want me to wait for you to go to lunch? You know, because we would often walk to lunch together, you know. We were buddies. And he said, no, just go ahead without me. And then I put my parka on, and I'm rushing to the mess hall, and just as I'm about to get to the mess hall, there's the loudest thunder that I'd ever heard in my entire life. You know, just this humongous crack of thunder. And I didn't see anything. I don't remember seeing a flash or anything like that. But the next thing I know, one of our counselors comes running from behind, just white as a ghost. And he just says, they've been hit. They got hit. And about 50 yards behind me, lightning had struck. And six kids got struck in all. The six kids included Joe, who told David not to wait up for him. But as the ambulances arrived, David and all the other campers were ushered into the mess hall. And it took a few days before they were told exactly what happened. The chaplain made an announcement at services in front of everybody. And he gets up there and sort of takes a deep breath. You know, his hands are folded in front of him and... 
you know, says that these, I think he names off all the names, says these six kids were were struck by lightning. Um, you know, there, there was this boy named Rico who was killed instantly. And then he said, Joe survived. And I just remember this pause and I I was thinking, you know, that he would uh he was gonna say, but he's in a coma. And then he said, Joe survived until Friday. And uh I mean I just collapsed. I just collapsed on the ground. I I think it would be impossible not to feel that especially at the age of twelve, not to feel that you know, I had done something to make that happen. David still had the metal crucifix that Joe had given him the night before he'd been hit by lightning. And David knew what he'd secretly asked the devil to do. And so while everybody at camp took the news really hard, he might have taken it the hardest. I had been told, like, you know, that you don't mess with spirits, you know, you don't mess with that kind of stuff because it's real. Spirits are real and, and ghosts are real and the devil is real. And I had, you know very directly challenged the devil and it resulted in, in somebody I was close to being killed. So David went to his counselor and the counselor had him talk to the priest. And all the adults said kind of what you'd expect. It wasn't David's fault. He shouldn't blame himself. Don't worry about it. But because this was a church camp, David had expected something very different. It was confusing, this reaction he was getting from the adults. When the adults told you, oh, don't, don't worry about it, it wasn't the devil, did you feel like, no, 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 that's, that's not what you taught me? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of like, after I talked with the priest, I thought, like, don't you believe this, dude? I mean, you know, it's like, here you are, a priest, and I'm telling you, like, this very serious thing happened within the system that you advocate, um, and then you're just telling me to ignore it. It's almost like, oh, we'll drop this because it's convenient now. You know, it's like it's more convenient to not believe this. So we'll just not do it right now. You know, let's just suspend it for this one circumstance. You know, this one circumstance, is the biggest thing that could possibly happen. Right. This stuff is only real as long as it's not taken really seriously. For a couple of years right after the lightning strike, David used to tell people what happened so he could see the reactions. He wasn't sure what to think, if it was the devil at work or not. He wanted to gauge what other people thought. But after a while, he stopped telling people. It's such an intense story that even with people who didn't believe in the devil, it seemed to contaminate how they saw him. It seemed to raise a question about him. And slowly, over the next few years, David stopped believing what he'd been taught. He stopped believing the devil exists and is out there throwing lightning bolts at whoever he wants. I, I sort of wonder how much of me not believing that has to do with the fact that when I was a kid, something happened that if I continued to believe that the devil can work that way, would make me sort of a killer, you know? Yeah. There's no in-between. Like, it made it untenable to continue believing the devil is real. Are you afraid that some people are going to hear you describe this on the radio and, and they'll think, like, oh, well, actually, you've got, you've got it wrong. And in the way they see the world, you actually did call in the devil and, and that's, what, that's what killed your friend. I'm not afraid that that will happen. I know that that will happen. I know that people will hear this and think that I brought the devil down on my friend, you know. And, and what I, do you want to say to them? I don't know. I, I don't know if I have anything to say to them. Uh, what what can you say to somebody who blames you for a death that you don't think is your fault? Entertaining 
And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey. He developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner. He got ptomaine poisoning last night after dinner. All the counselors hate the waiters. And the lake has alligators. And the head coach wants no sissies. So he reads to us from something called Ulysses. Now I don't want this should scare you. But my bunkmate has malaria. You remember Jeffrey Hardy. They're about to organize a searching party. Undecided voters can go lots of places for advice on who to vote for. Church is not one of those places. Clergy may sermonize about political issues, but they may not advocate for a particular candidate because a 1954 tax code provision known as the Johnson Amendment prohibits nonprofit organizations from, quote, intervening in elections. But does that fly in the face of freedom of speech and religion? A group called the Alliance Defense Fund thinks so and is organizing pastors to force the issue September 28th by intentionally violating the no-endorsement rules in their sermons. Eric Stanley is an attorney with the ADF, which calls the protest Pulpit Freedom Sunday. They are pastors that are scattered across the country. They will preach a sermon on Sunday. That sermon will evaluate the current candidates for office in light of Scripture and will make specific recommendations based on that evaluation. And if the IRS chooses to investigate and and come after these churches, uh, then we will file suit against the IRS on behalf of these churches and seek to have the Johnson Amendment overturned as unconstitutional. So you're saying, make us test cases, bring it on. Yes, in essence, that's what we're saying. And, you know, these pastors firmly believe that they should have the right to speak freely from the pulpit, uh, that what they are doing is not political speech, that this is core religious expression, uh, that it is applying the Bible, applying Scripture to every area of life, including candidates and elections, and they shouldn't be censored or punished for that. But what part of vote for John McCain or vote for Barack Obama has anything to do with biblical truth? What, where's the scripture behind that? What they will do is they will address the current candidates for office in light of what the scriptural teachings on the issues are and how the candidates stack up against those biblical teachings on the issues. Now, a U.S. district court has ruled on this issue in the past, and the ruling was that churches are not prohibited from any kind of exercise of free speech, but that in exchange for what the Supreme Court has called a subsidy, that is to say their tax-exempt status, uh, they simply have to refrain from explicit endorsements from the pulpit. The case that you're talking about is the Church at Pierce Creek case, uh, Branch Ministries, which was a newspaper ad that was run by a church. The church conceded that it was not part of their free exercise of religion to run that newspaper ad. Here we're talking about a completely different set of facts, a pastor preaching to his congregation from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. You can't get any more of the core free exercise of religion than that. Now this principle obviously is very important to you, because as I understand it, by encouraging these 33 pastors to flout the IRS regulations, that you could lose your ability to practice before the tax bar, that uh, you could be disqualified from arguing in cases uh, with the IRS. Is that is that true? I can't obviously stop them from trying, but I think that uh, we are uh, not encouraging a violation of the federal tax law here What we're doing is engaging in in activities that other groups, like the ACLU even, engage in on a daily basis. If one of our citizens is confronted with a law that infringes on their constitutional rights to free speech or free exercise of religion, whatever it may be, then that individual has the option to freely exercise their constitutional rights. If the government chooses to enforce the law against them, then they have a right to cease their activities, go to federal court, and ask the court to decide the constitutionality of that law. 
That's what these pastors are doing. They're freely exercising their constitutional rights. Civil so, disobedience, in other words. Well, you know, and I wouldn't even characterize it as civil disobedience. What I would characterize it as is obedience to the Constitution. It was an unconstitutional piece of legislation when it was passed, and it's unconstitutional now. Now, the American Civil Liberties Union and, and more than 100 other pastors are lined up against you on this. They preached uh, last Sunday, not with a uh, political endorsement, but rather arguing against your pulpit initiative. They believe that what's at issue here is uh, the separation of church and state. Why are they wrong? Well, it's interesting that uh, they will argue very forcefully for the separation of church and state, but in this instance, uh, what they're actually asking for by continuing the Johnson Amendment is continued government control and censorship over the pulpit, continued entanglement of the government with religion, in essence. What we're doing here is trying to enforce a very healthy separation between church and state uh, to really get the government out of the pulpits of America once and for all, because the, the government and government agents have no business parsing the words of a sermon to determine whether the law is violated or not. This, at base, is a theological discussion that churches and pastors need to debate among themselves. This is not a theological debate that the government should come down on one side or the other on. All right, Eric, thank you very much. Thank you. Eric Stanley is Senior Counsel with the Alliance Defense Fund. Thumb injury appeals to Christ Almighty. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. Local resident Bart Peetner made an appeal to Lord Jesus Christ Almighty today following a ball-peen hammer blow to his thumb. Peetner addressed Christ as Holy Jesus Christ Almighty in heaven as he was repairing a chair in his garage. Though details on the spiritual communion are not available, Peetner repeated the name of Christ twice more in the appeal. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. The Reverend Eric Williams is sending a very different message to his flock at the North Congregational United Church of Christ in Columbus, Ohio. Last Sunday, he urged clergy across the nation to preach from the pulpit against repealing the Johnson Amendment and for the IRS to take action against the ADF. He may have led the charge, but he says many heard the call. It's been a charge that's been very easy to lead because uh, the vast majority of uh, clergy, uh, I think, around the nation understand uh, what's at stake. They understand that the separation of church and state largely protects the religious freedoms we enjoy. All right, that's understood. But my understanding of the separation of church and state is that it's supposed to keep the state out of the business of the church and not vice versa. Well, it's a separation that seeks both parties to honor the unique role the other party plays. And I really look at this initiative by the Alliance Defense Fund as an attempt to entangle 
the church with government. They portray it as just the opposite. But in fact, if a religious leader is, is so concerned about endorsing a candidate, then they really have their eye towards the political process rather than the role that the church usually plays in the public discussion. But what about the free speech issue here? Why should a church be penalized uh, by losing its tax exemption for expressing a, a view on anything, political or otherwise? Well, the tax exemption really is a privilege. It's not a right. Really, any minister can endorse a candidate. You just can't do that using tax dollars. So if the minister is willing to set aside that tax exempt status, that's fine. Or why can't the minister just step out of the pulpit, take off the robe, cross the street, be off of church property, and endorse as a private citizen? It's not really, in my mind, a question of free speech. It's really a question of abusing uh, the privileged role uh, that charities, in this case churches, have uh, the government extends to them to use tax dollars to endorse candidates. Some people, including the Supreme Court of the United States, have described the tax exemption as a subsidy for churches to do their charitable and spiritual work. Uh But the people on the other side of this argument at the Alliance Defense Fund object to the word subsidy. They think that uh, skews the discussion. Is that the right word? Well, I don't think it would be a word that I would choose, but I certainly understand and would agree with that choice. We need to look at church history, and we need to look at our own national history. When those first immigrants came over, they were coming over for several reasons, but central was religious freedom. I would describe our nation as a religious nation. You know, a lot of the values, religious values, that we hold individually inform, I think, the polity and practice of our government. And so the government has recognized that among all the charities, uh, the church, uh, the synagogue, the mosque, is something that does good work. There is this historic understanding between the government and the religious community that elevates the status of the religious community so that it can do the good work. And I like the word elevated because I think that is our role. We need to be above politics. We, don't, we should not ever seek to entangle ourselves with politics. The Republic seemed to, you know, blunder along pretty well for 180 years before the 1954 statute that removes tax exemptions for explicitly political nonprofits. Mm-hmm. W- what changed uh, 54 years ago that uh, that made the government have to use the tax code as both a carrot and a stick? I can't be honest and say I know in detail all that went into that 1954 amendment. My understanding, it was clearly a logical, reasonable expression of this evolution of our democratic process. When the Pilgrims and Puritans came over, there were only three or four different denominations. Today, we have over 300 world religions. And I think that the separation of church and state is one of those safeguards that allows each of those 300 religions to worship and to conduct their life in a way, again, that's free from the kind of government control or influence that the original immigrants fled to this nation to enjoy. I have to invoke the Reverend Martin Luther King here, who himself used the pulpit as a bully pulpit, not only to advance the cause of civil rights, but to condemn the war in Vietnam and implicitly the Johnson administration. Do you think he was abusing the uh, the privileges of his pulpit? Uh, he was in no way endorsing or opposing a candidate running for office. He was doing the good, hard, prophetic work that I think churches should be doing. If he had become entangled in the election process, he would have lost the integrity, he would have lost the moral authority that he could bring to opposing the war and opposing some of those issues of the government. So Martin Luther King understood that he could approach that line of separation, but dare not cross it. He could very reasonably, prophetically, passionately, and legally push all the social issues of the day without violating the law. That was the genius he brought, I think, to the movement he led. Well, uh, Reverend Williams, thank you very much. My pleasure, Bob. Take care. And recognize that there are ties between us, all men and women living on the earth. Ties of hope and love, of sister and brotherhood, that we are bound together in our desire.
the world become a place in which our children can grow free and strong. We are bound together by the task that stands before us and the road that lies ahead. We are bound and we are bound. There is a feeling like the clenching of a fist. There is a hunger in the center of the chest. There is a passage through the darkness and the mist. And though the body sleeps, the heart will never rest. So uh, Isaac Hayes died, you know, sings soul music, was the chef on Comedy Central. We had a discussion about it. Chef on South Park. South Central, did I not, say? You, no, there's just not a... You said the chef on Comedy Central. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. That's funny. I mixed up a lot of things. All right, on South Park. Yes, sorry. Um, and we talked about it on the YoungTurks.com in the third hour. So uh, we were wondering, hey, what? he's a Scientologist. What happens to Scientologists when they die? Do they go to heaven? Do they not? Turns out, no. First of all, they view their uh, bodies as meat that is just being occupied by their true selves, which are, of course, thetans. T-H-E-T-A-N. Right, obviously, but you knew that. Uh, and they uh, apparently get more and more advanced as they go through their different lives. Now, they don't, they believe in reincarnation, okay, but they don't believe that reincarnation is punitive or is a reward for good things. So if you do it's something... sort of random. It kind of is. Okay, so if you go, and if you're bad in your life, you don't become a cockroach, and if you're great, you don't become Michael Phelps or something, right? So you just get transferred from one body to another. In fact, L. Ron Hubbard, who invented Scientology just literally out of his ass, uh, just pulled it right out of there, uh, used to say back in the 1950s, he's uh, on a lecture, said, oh, your uh, Thetan gets sent over to Venus, like literally the planet Venus. Don't you get the feeling, though, real quick, that it was like this? Yeah, because your thetan then it gets sent to uh, uh, Mars, Venus. Thetan goes to Venus, where it help me out, and where it is transported back in a different shuttle to Earth, where it looks for a new body. Right, and then it goes to Venus, and then it gets in a, some sort of uh, I don't know craft of some sort, and then it uh, comes back to. Uh, Earth, and then it uh, you find another another body, and that's how it is. I know this because I've checked. <laughs> yeah, and he got, I mean, how many people? Hundreds of thousands? Dozens. Okay, he got all. He got Tom Cruise. He got John Travolta. He got Isaac Hayes. He got all these people to be like, yeah, totally, mm. yeah. I can't wait to go to Venus when I die. <laughs> and then now, of course, it's embarrassing because that looks. Man, know. are we gonna feel stupid? Like when we're together after we die on Venus. <laughs> we're like, hey, did you get are, did you and then we're gonna be shuttle like, back yet? They're going to be like, thank God it's not punitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least we're not going to get punished for it. Right, we're going to we're, we're see Al Ron, and we're going to be like, Al Ron is going to be like, uh, you know, he might be a cockroach because he's not going to get rewarded either. Yeah. We're going to be like, dude, sorry, totally our bad. Embarrassed. <laughs> so embarrassed right now. Yeah, I, you know. Venus? Who yeah. would have figured? Right? Yeah. Except you. You figured it out. And they would be like, oh, look, see that dog. Play the theme from Shaft. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Okay, so anyway, by the way, uh, you can avoid all this if you purify your soul uh, by paying a lot of money to the Church of Scientology. Avoid it? Why would you want to avoid it? Uh, yeah, Venus sounds fun, doesn't it? Uh, but no, but I mean, is it something to be avoided? You know, the thing is, you can get rid of this uh, meat that you're occupying mm -hmm. that's weighing you down if you become, quote-unquote, clear, mm -hmm. okay? And once you've uh, achieved clarity, mm -hmm. okay, and then you become the actual thetan. You just exist in the world as a thetan. No, oh, then you won't get reincarnated. Just sort of be your own soul. will travel everywhere right. and do whatever it wants and go, right. go to Venus if it wanted and apparently, and there's some bridge somewhere. There's like a bridge to nowhere or something, you know, like that you go on if you get heightened consciousness, etc. And apparently, Isaac Hayes achieved uh, clarity in 2002. Mm. So maybe he's just poof out mm -hmm. there somewhere. In fact, he might be in the studio right now watching as a thief. Hey, Isaac, how are you? Uh, it could be. I mean, it's uh, unlikely, mm -hmm. but possible. So uh, and, and isn't it weird, though, that he was just in that movie with Bernie Mac? No, we were talking about that. And then I said Sam Jackson was also in that movie, 
and things come in threes, Sam Jackson better watch out. He's got to hope that the thing that came in the first of the three was Morgan Freeman. Oh, but were they in the same movie? No, but, you know. Oh, oh, I get right, it, because right. he's black. Uh, well, I don't know why I do this show with this guy. Caught off guard, all worked up. The air is as dark and cold as night. Let me go. I'm not done. I swear I'll take just one lifetime. God makes Spanish the official language of Christianity. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Responding to public pressure, the Lord Almighty today decreed Spanish to be the official language for every Christian on earth. The announcement sent shockwaves through the world's clergy and lay people alike as everything from sermons all the way down to a single believer's silent prayer must be said and thought in Spanish. Cardinal Joseph Locallo. The Lord will no longer respond to your prayers unless they are presented in his chosen language. The Lord also ordered every Christian to have one of those Mexican devotional candles in his home or face the eternal torment of hell. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. My guest right now is the author of Gods and Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters, and she's a uh, contributor to the Daily Prospect. Sarah Posner, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's good to, I'm, I'm glad you're here because this just came up, and now we can talk about it. Uh, it, now, how, how do you see this? I, I mean, you're, you're somebody who, who deals with the pulse of what religious voters are doing, who they are, how they break up, and I want to talk about that specifically in a minute. But do you feel that this is some sort of um, anti-constitutional movement that, uh, that Barack Obama is engaging in to pander to the religious people? Well, I mean, clearly there are constitutional issues that need to be addressed, mm-hmm. what it is that he's proposing and how it's going to be different from the Bush faith-based initiative, which is fraught with constitutional problems. Um, now, he says that, you know, he wouldn't allow any discrimination in the hiring or service provision by groups that get um, faith-based funds and that he wouldn't allow proselytizing. Um, but, you know, this this absence of proselytizing is a very, very difficult thing to police. Like, say, for example, you have given uh, federal funds to a group in a community where, which is like, you know, 90% Christian. You know, what's going to happen when, you know, a Hindu comes in for service? Or a Buddhist comes into for services. You know who's going to who's going to say that they turned them down or they didn't proselytize to this person? I guess yeah, and that's my question too. Is that and I realized that when I was talking to a caller, is that once you give the money to a religious organization, that is the organization that has the money, no matter how they're behaving in relation to the rules or the provisions of the incentive. That is where they are coming. This is where desperate people or people that need help are coming. So we, even without right. proselytizing, it exists in the format or the context of this religious organization. Right. I mean, it's very, I think, hard to separate, you know, what is proselytizing and what is the 
provision of the service within the context of this religious organization. Um, and like I said, I think it's, it's going to be next to impossible for the government to police that, um, especially in smaller organizations and smaller communities that are getting these grants. Um, and that's something that's a very deep concern. Another concern is that the government would be putting money directly into houses of worship, which raises all sorts of constitutional questions, of course. Now, some church-state separation advocates have been saying, well, you know, it would be better, maybe not perfect, but better if the program required the House of Worship to create a separate 501c3 organization to receive the money. That way there would be more accountability. The government wouldn't be um, meddling in the church's finances so much, uh, and that would be sort of a cleaner way of making sure that it was a provision of secular services. Um, but it wasn't clear to me from Obama's speech uh, or the talking points that his campaign put out that that was something that he envisioned. And I, and I guess the, the issue about about centrism and, and his move towards the center is that why can't we have a discussion about how we can fix the government to more effectively provide for people who are in these uh, situations and, and in these communities uh, without being embarrassed about it or out being or without being afraid to be accused of being some sort of uh, Democrat who's going to increase taxes and, and create a welfare state that that dialogue doesn't even happen so I guess it can be seen as sort of uh, uh, an excuse to not engage in fixing the government. Right. Well, I mean, obviously it would be taxpayer money that would be funding the um, the faith-based initiative. So, you know, whether it goes to uh, whether that money is being spent on a government program that's administered by the government or a secular grantee of the government or whether it's being sent to a faith-based organization, it's still taxpayer money. Um, you know, right. But then the, then the constitutional uh, element really comes right. into play in right. that. I mean, but as far as whether, you know, uh, whether uh, Obama moved to the center on this, I mean, he has been talking about this sort of thing for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but as you noticed, I mean, he did not bring it out as the centerpiece of his campaign during the primaries. He waited until uh, the primaries were over <laughs> to really, you know, make the big speech on it. Right. And it's interesting, though, too, that the, the discussion in religious terms or about, you know, moral or issues, or as as they're called sometimes, is that, this is something that's very broad, and and I guess some of the questions I have for you is that what is that you're hearing a lot that that the uh, the religious right or the evangelical base has sort of dispersed or, or broken up, or that there's infighting about what's important uh, to them as a voting bloc at this point in time. Is is any of that true? Is it a different landscape, or are they just underground a bit? Um. Well, the thing you have to understand at the outset is, is evangelicals, they comprise about 25 to 30 percent of the U.S. adult population. About half of them are conservative, so half of them you would put in the religious right column. And then, you know, another, you know, 30 to 40 percent of them are sort of centrist, um, and then maybe 10 percent of them are what you might be able to call progressive. So, oh, so, so you're saying that half of them are conservative, which means that their uh, their Christian intentions are dubious. And about 10% of them are, are probably, you know, real Christians. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to characterize it okay. that way. Right. Um, but in any case, I, I don't think that Obama is holding out a lot of hope of getting that any part of that 50% that is conservative. But that middle section, that 40 or so percent that's centrist, these were people that for a long time were fairly reliably Republican voters who this year are looking around for an alternative. They're peeling away from the Republican Party a bit. They're not peeling away to the Democratic Party. They're becoming independents as opposed to becoming Democrats. Well, well, now, what are those reasons? Are? I mean, are these, are, are these for, for, you know, uh, gay marriage and abortion reasons? Are these for economic reasons? Are these, are these reasons? It's, it's a lot of reasons. It's a lot of reasons. I think um, some of it is... Some of it is discussed with the religious right and the inordinate focus on abortion and gay marriage. But a lot of it is also um, torture. A lot of them are opposed to the Bush administration policy on torture. They're opposed to the Iraq war. They're concerned about the economy. They're concerned about the environment. So there's sort of a, a more expansive menu of issues that they're concerned about. Now, that doesn't mean that um, they're looking for, um, you know, an FDR-style New Deal or, you know, a, a, a LBJ war on poverty or something like that, but they're they're not just being reflexively Republican. Okay, so, so, those, so it's those voters that uh, Obama is trying to reach because, so, like I said, they're yeah. not um, 
you know, they're not liberal or progressive in the sense that you and I might think of, you know, government-solving problems. So it, he's using this as, a, as part of his outreach to that. So when, you have, when, so when you have leaders like John Hagee and you have uh, uh, leaders like James Dobson and you have these leaders, I, I, I guess what's happening in, in some of the stuff that spurred some of this change of heart on is that once these leaders became, you know, sort of transparent power jockeys, that you know they became disillusioned with with their own leadership, and, and I think maybe they're becoming more practical and, and perhaps even focusing more on their communities. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely is happening. Um, and with a, a lot of them, they still remain fairly politically conservative. I mean, I, I would not you know point to this. Don't hold out hope. <laughs> you know, it's a mass exodus to the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. But like I said, you know, Obama is looking at particularly, I think, a few states. Um, where there's a strong evangelical presence and hoping that, you know, by peeling away some segment of that 40% and certainly a good segment of the 10% that's, that's more progressive, um, that that could turn the election in some key states. Now, these states, uh, is this primarily, uh, I know that there is an incredible uh, expansion in the in the Latino evangelical community, mm-hmm. and, and and I I assume that he is 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 definitely reaching out to that community in, in, yes, in he is. a lot. When he had when he had the um, the meeting with the thirty or so Christian leaders a couple weeks ago in Chicago, one of the people who was there was Sam Rodriguez, who's the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, which is the largest. Uh, Latino evangelical organization in the country representing about 15 million Latino evangelicals. And so that's a very big voter block, um, big, and, and incidentally big in states where there's a gay marriage ban on the ballot in Florida and in, um, California. And, uh, that leadership is, uh, is promoting the gay marriage ban and advocating for the gay marriage ban. So there's, they part company with Obama on that. Okay, so now, who, now, do you think that in, in terms of uh, how how McCain has made himself look in his desperation to uh, to pander to the worst of the uh, the leaders, do you think Obama is is being diplomatic and and do you think he's being earnest in his outreach? Well, obviously, um, you know he has he has been a church going person for twenty years. Um, and I don't doubt that he um, is a person of faith, but I think a lot of what he's done in the past couple of weeks is is for political expediency and for winning the election. Um, you know, there's there's no doubt that the meeting with the uh, 30 or so pastors and inviting some you know very conservative ones in the mix, um, the proposal for the faith-based initiative, his upcoming Joshua Generation project, which will be about uh, outreach to younger evangelicals. He's doing a lot of uh, politically minded things to make himself look appealing to voters who are voters for whom it's very important that the candidate be a person of faith. But he's not promising them a theocracy, which is relieving. Well, he is promising them a role for faith in government and faith in politics. Now, that doesn't mean that he's proposing some sort of Christian reconstructionist thing a la, you know, some of the leaders of the Christian right. But it doesn't mean that it's lacking in constitutional uh, issues. Well, yeah, it, along the way. Right. I I appreciate your uh, your thoughts on this and and thanks for talking to us, Sarah. Okay, thanks, Mark. Take care. Sarah Posner, author of Gods and Prophets, God's Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters, and she's uh, contributed to Daily Prospect. It is a slippery slope, and I'm learning things as I speak to you people. Uh, because I'm, I'm relatively a non, I'm sort of a heathen. I, I don't have a God in place, and I, I kind of spin around, and, and I try to be rational, but I know I'm not in control of everything. But I'll take some calls on this again, 866-303-2270, about Obama's, if you do see it as pandering, do you see it as necessary? Is it wrong for the left to start criticizing Obama for moving towards the center? Isn't there some argument to be made that let's get the guy in and stack the Congress and stack the Senate towards the right direction and maybe make a move progressively in that way? So, you know, he has to do their bidding. I mean, is this a time to take shots at Obama around this stuff? And also, I will take calls on the constitutionality of his proposition, uh, because now I'm in this weird gray area where I tend to believe in people. I tend to think that people are good, and I tend to think that a lot of times what religious organizations do in communities is earnest and decent. 
but I guess I'm in the minority. It's weird because I'm, I'm not a big fan of believers, uh, but uh, or, or as I said, I don't have a God of my own, but I do think that there is a behavior that is available for people who, who behave in a, in a quote-unquote Christian way that is sometimes helpful. Telegraph, the Olympic Delivery Authority has said it wants to produce an ideal venue for the 2012 Olympics in London, an ideal venue for people of all cultures, faiths, ages, and abilities. Now, it so happens, says the Telegraph, that the Islamic religion prohibits Muslims from facing the direction of prayer when they visit the lavatory. An Olympic spokesman said a percentage of general toilets, you remember him, he ran the campaign in Afghanistan, a percentage of general toilets would not face Mecca as part of its drive to make the 2012 Olympics the most inclusive and accessible Olympic Games ever. As part of the design, special washing facilities will be linked to Islamic prayer rooms. It's not the first time toilets have changed direction to accommodate Muslims. In Britain, last year, thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money was used to ensure toilets at Brixton Prison in London did not offend religious law. Muslim prisoners had complained of having to sit sideways so as not to insult their faith. Turkey, by the way, just like Mexico in in how they keep stuff up. They'll be like, you'll be walking around and there'll be it's like cows and do- cow dung and you know and th- things falling apart. And you're like, what the fuck? There's like some ruins here. I just like stumbled on these ruins. There'll be a small sign saying Temple of Artemis, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Enjoy. <laughs> That's it. Ooh. You're like, motherfucker, keep it up. It's one of the seven wonders of the freaking ancient world. What are you doing? They don't it's, care. There's no gate. There's no care. nothing. People and cows and goats walking by. I'm like, it's the temple of freaking Artemis. That's unbelievable. Jenk, uh, a lot of these places don't even have, like, sewer systems. Running water. I mean, uh, really, come on. I don't know, man. And then it's, they have the Hagia Sophia, which is the... You know, the ancient mosque slash church in, in Istanbul. It's like one of the landmarks of Istanbul. You mean the big church in Constantinople built yeah. by Christians totally. for Christian services, built as a Christian building? A- yeah. Absolutely. And the one that they then turned into a mosque when they took After over. After they killed everybody right. who didn't convert. Yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, I got a funny story about that, too. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but so they, you know that that's actually the church that all the mosques are modeled after. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing. So I didn't know that for a long time, and then I was like, oh, they built this mosque. I mean, this church with this cute little dome, and the Muslims came and took it over, and they're like, oh, we like that dome. That dome looks good. Yeah, let's let's roll that way. Let's let's just make all of our mosques with domes. 
Um, now they've turned it into a museum because they don't want it to it's mosque, church. They couldn't make up their mind. They fuck it. Let's call it a museum. I uh, thought it was still a mosque. It's not. No, no. It's really? A, it's a museum now. Right. Uh, but what they did was they're like all museums in Turkey are for some insane reason painted red. So they painted the mosque red. I was like, why? Why did you do that? It looks ridiculous. They, the outside, not the inside, thank yeah. God, because the inside is ancient and you know beautiful and yeah. has to be protected and stuff. But even the outside should be protected. It should look nice. It's like one of your landmarks. Like, oh, fuck it, all museums are red. <laughs> they painted it red. Really? Yeah. It wasn't red before? No. What color was no, it? No, it was yellow before. When I was a kid, it was yellow. Oh, no kidding. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but, but look, you can't, I mean, it's just like Mecca. That didn't used to be Islamic. I mean, no, they yeah. were always worshiping that damn meteorite. Oh, I know, just, totally. They yeah. just were worshiping things by different names at the meteorite. <laughs> Do you know what Allah it means? No uh, idea. Okay, Allah is one. Back in in Mecca, it used to be a big tourist destination uh, in the Middle Eastern world and the Saudi Arabian world, and uh, it, they prayed to a lot of different gods at the time. They were monotheistic, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, uh, poly, uh, polytheistic, right? And Muhammad comes in and says, okay, that's it. Um, well, polytheism, there's only one God. Uh, but he can't make a deal with Mecca, and the guys in Mecca are powerful because they're a trade route, and everybody comes in and pays tribute to their different gods, and they collect and, all the money. And back to tie into this morning's show, uh, he was robbing all their trade caravans. That's right. That's right. Fucking up the economy. Right. So now they're trying to figure out a deal, right? And and he's a businessman, and he wants to make a deal and take over Mecca, Right. And they're like, but the thing is, we got Vegas going on here, right? And you can't come in here and fuck up Vegas. This is how we make money. And I know you want to make money, right? And he, and so he actually, at one point, strikes a deal with them and says, all right, keep your couple of gods. We'll change it around. We'll say there's three gods or four gods or something like that. And that's the satanic verses. That goes in the Quran. Because mm-hmm. you remember, he wrote the Quran like, um, God just told me that we have to have four gods. Like, change it up, right? God told me that you can't drink, because motherfuckers were really drunk last night. Okay? I mean, but literally, that's how he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? And, and then, but when he came out with that verse, people were like, what do you mean? The whole thing was based on one God. What do you mean three, four gods? What are you talking about? That's crazy, right? Oh, oh, well, I didn't say that. Did I say oh. that? Oh, I, I, oh, no, you know what it is? And this is genius at the time. Think about it. He's yeah. a really, really smart guy. He goes, oh, it turns out that time... Satan was whispering into my ear and not God. So disregard the satanic verses. We're back to one God. Okay? And so he goes inside, to, but he's still got to make a deal. Mm-hmm. He goes inside the, the uh, what, forgetting the name of the it The Casbah? The, the, the place that they go around now, the Muslims go around. I thought around. it was called the Casbah. Is it the Casbah? I don't know. You, you're Turkish, man. I, mean, I know. I'm screwing it up. The, the, fuck, the name. Were your parents like the you know, Hindu Turks or something? <laughs> no, no, we're Muslim, but we, we're Turks, so we don't really care. Uh, the Dome of the Rock? That must, that must be it. The Dome of the Rock? No. At the Dome, isn't that like Al-Aqsa? Isn't that the right. one in fucking Jerusalem? Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, really, Forget dude. what its name is. Okay, forget what its name is. So he goes into the point where they go all around, right? The main center. The Casbah. Okay, Casbah. Like whatever. rock the Casbah. Is that what it is? Yes. Unbelievable. All right, anyway. <laughs> so he goes inside there, and he's like, dude, this 3-4 thing didn't work out. It was a disaster, right? And they're like, final deal. Deal or no deal. They're like, just pick one of the motherfuckers in here. Okay, one of the, one, one of the gods in here. And you know what we'll do? We'll call that the one God. And they all, you know how in Arabic everything is all something? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, all, all, all. And he gets to this one, Allah. I'll pick him. And it becomes Allah, God. I mean. <laughs> and there you have Islam. <laughs> right now, right now, the one Islamic fundamentalist who watches this show on the Internet is writing down all of your information. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you dare to make fun of things that are true. Is that story true? Because it makes me wonder. No, it's, <laughs> it's all true. But uh, it's, he was just, I mean, one guy out in the open. I mean, think how they put the fucking book of Revelations and somehow put that into the Bible. Like, hey, we got this uh, crazy thing, this Greek monk 400 years later, yeah. sitting alone, freaking out, writing. What do you think? Should we put that in? 
it'll scare the shit out of people. Ah, put it in. <laughs> no, how they put the Bible together is a thousand times worse. No, no, way worse. Yeah. But but you can't, like, look at it and go, it's just one person you could see. Because you can tell the story with Muhammad. You'd be like, he said four, and then it's like, what? <laughs> and he went back on it. You can't, like, find one specific person in Christianity. Because that, it's so, so freaking confusing. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even really piece it together. because well, nobody could read and write, and there was no press. There's nothing. Uh-huh. Right. So, uh, final thing on all of this is, uh, in... In popular Turkish mythology, folklore, but they think it's real. Okay, of course they do. Uh, they when uh, Fatih Sultan Mehmed conquers Constantinople, he's the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan that finally conquers Constantinople. He comes in, and the town is so thankful for being conquered that a young woman comes and offers her, 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 the Sultan her flower. <laughs> and I said, "Oh, I bet she did. Man. <laughs> I bet she did. Man, <laughs> I'm like, man, are you sure, Dad, that that was a symbolism?" And the first time that I told him that, he's like, "Oh, I did not think about it that way. Well, that is wrong. <laughs> it's it's totally it's how things look. Our ancestors were fucking savages. Oh, absolutely. on every side. You know, we we don't talk about this enough. I really we should talk about this all the time on the show. Okay." Dude, we until until like literally sixty years ago, what would happen is, you know, eight out of ten times, if you won a war, you'd go into the city and steal everything, rape and rape all the women, murder all the men and children. I mean, it's just what they did. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, what kind of beasts are we? At the end of all the wars, we would rape all the women in the city. Okay. And that happened till so recently. Yeah. Until basically and the apparently, World War II. And apparently, and still happens in isolated incidents. I mean, look at the Haditha killings. Right. And, and, look, and the guys who, and, remember, raped the 15-year-old girl and then fucking killed everybody in the neighboring houses? Absolutely. Well, look at Darfur. Bosnia. Yeah. Bosnia, Darfur. You know, that's what Afghanistan, they, all the stories of Taliban, raping, murdering, everything. I mean, come on. I mean, war, like, what do you think those South Korean female hostages are going through right now? Yeah, so I don't even want to talk Really? About it. I mean, it's terrible. So, um, now, and you know, that was one of the ways that they incentivized the troops. They would say, hey, the British Army would have been, there would have been no British Empire if they didn't allow looting. That's now, why guys joined up. No, but that's why they joined up armies for millennium. They, they, it's, why? For like God and country? Fuck no. They were like, okay, look, if we win, you get to have all this gold, then you don't have to work anymore. And you can get a couple of slaves, and they'll work your land and stuff. You'll get maybe we'll get you some land from there, and rape as many women as you like. Right? And they're like, "Fuck it, all right, let's go to war." You know, that's basically, in a real simple nutshell, that's how it works. says the 2007 Christmas season had the fewest miracles on record. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The numbers for December's Christmas season miracles are in, and they are not good. That according to a new report released today confirming only three Christmas miracles, the lowest number since record-keeping began in 1934. Holiday miracle analyst James Udall. One person is touched by a miracle. It can, over time, bring good cheer to thousands of people in the outlying area. Unfortunately, we're just really seeing a lot less and less of that. Sources close to the Lord God have indicated that he has been setting miracles aside for some time to prepare a special surprise for this year's Secretary's Day.
Thanks for listening, everybody. So that's it. We're at the end of another one of these just unbelievably fun editions about religion on the show. And I just wanted to mention real quick that the last time I did one of these, I talked at the end about how and where you could send your hate mail about the show and was really genuinely surprised that I did not get any. And don't get me wrong, that episode got more feedback than any episode I can remember, and all of it was positive. So go figure on that. Uh, Take that for what it's worth. I'm not sure what that means. Most likely just that the people who weren't offended didn't bother to write in, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Aside from that, I've just got to tell you, the blog is going crazy. Uh, I'm, I'm loving the blog. You know, the show is great. The podcast is great. I'm always going to love the podcast. The blog is taking me by surprise a little bit. I didn't, I didn't know I'd, I'd love it as much as I am, but uh, I'm really excited about what's happening. Uh, you know, really, really satisfied with how we're going so far. We have some great posts happening, uh, great guest bloggers coming on, uh, adding to the work, and uh, and things are going really well. And I just want to let you know what you've been missing recently if you haven't been checking out the blog, which would include uh, in-depth, great examination of how the McCain campaign is uh, spewing hate about Obama and how the McCain Palin supporters are reacting to that. Uh, it's getting dangerous, frankly. I mean, like, really, the Secret Service are starting to look in to uh, McCain Palin supporters because they've been threatening Obama's life. It's it's horrific. Uh, a related post uh, about how race is playing a role in the campaign, uh, including a real-life example of. Uh, you know, race and politics and violence all coming to a horrible collision. Uh, luckily, no one died, but things are getting serious. Check out the, the post on, on race in the campaign to, uh, to learn all about that. A just devastating, horrible, horrible, uh, <laughs> fantastic article about uh, a, a comparison of Sarah Palin and George W. Bush. I mean, uh, boy, if, if you had any question that maybe Sarah Palin had any idea of what was going on in the world, just to know how similar she is to George Bush should remove all doubt. Uh, and so definitely check that out for, uh, for an entertaining romp through uh, both of their psyches. And then finally, um, just a really fantastic animated video on global warming was just posted on on this friday uh, of this last week and um you know i i mention every once in a while my day job is to work on global warming for a non-profit here in dc and you know so i didn't need any education on the subject but this video it's i mean it's fun it's very well done very much worth your time whether you know a little bit of the, about the subject a lot um or if you're trying to find something to pass on to your uh, non-believer friends, anything along those lines, it's it doesn't matter who you are. This video is worth your time. So uh, this great animated video, you'll find that on the blog as well. Uh, when we have a, uh, a blog post that has a video, it's labeled video, so you should be able to find it pretty easily. Also going on in the blog, we've started posting dig links, dig.com links in every single uh, article, whether it be for the blog or uh, show notes for the podcast, every single article has a dig link now. So one more way that you can help promote what we do, if you read the blog regularly uh, or just check out a post every now and then, if you like what you see, or even if you don't, I don't particularly care, if you hit the dig link, that helps get our material out into the dig community. And, and we really just hope to use that to promote our work to uh, to more and more people who might not otherwise find it. So, speaking of promoting what we do, you know, I just I hope you guys have noticed that we've been doing some extra work around here. You know, extra shows, uh, extra podcasts from what we were doing, launching the blog, trying to hit the ground running on that, and uh, and you know, we've really just been busting our asses here. 
And obviously, as you know, the podcast, the blog, everything for you, totally free. All we ask is that you help us promote it, whether it be, you know, just your friends and family, talk to them about the show, email them, uh, send them the link to uh, our website, or do some of the things that we have posted on our website. A really simple, easy link to, uh, to get you where you need to be to leave us a customer review on iTunes. You can dig the podcast. You can dig each article of the blog. You can vote for us on Podcast Alley, and we hope to be having you vote for us in the podcast awards coming up here in a week and a half or so. You know, but if you like what we do, I hope that uh, you'll at least consider giving back uh, in, in that way and just helping us grow our audience and, and spread the word even more. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestofleft.com. Thought lines now black and white You took a part of picture that wasn't right